Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast, where we share biblical teaching to glorify God and to bless you. This year, we're talking about my part, God's plan. God has a purpose for you, and that purpose is a part of God's bigger plan for the world. Now, if you connect with what you hear today, I hope you'll join us online Sundays at 10 a.m., or that you'll join us on-site right here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, let's jump into today's teaching, and don't forget, you're part of God's Hey, we are going to be in Mark chapter 1 and 2 today. Mark is the second gospel, so New Testament, second half of your Bible, there's Matthew first and then Mark, and we're going to be in the first chapter of Mark, and then we're going to roll over into the second chapter of Mark. So if you want to go there, you can. That'd be great this morning. And then just before we get going, I'm going to pray a word of announcement. Next week, I'm not going to preach. We're going to spend the whole service focused on worship, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. So a special communion service next week. Of course, we take the Lord's Supper every week together. It's one of the distinctive um, pieces of our movement in our church. But we're going to elevate it even more so next week and just spend a special time gathered around the Lord's table together. So I hope that you'll come and be part of that next week. Let me pray over us as we get going this morning. God, I thank you for the body of your Son, given for each of us. The one who, even though we were still sinners, died for us. God, I'm thankful for his body of which we are a part this morning. The body of your son, Jesus Christ, the church. May we be built up as your church this morning. As we place ourselves under your word looking to the example of your son, Jesus, to guide us as your people. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our King. Amen. Ten years ago, I, I preached a sermon to you all where I introduced you to three words or a concept based on these three words. And sociologists have used three, these three words to define the most common way that people come to exist or come to belong in a group of people. So people who are outside the group, that these three words represent a process by which someone outside might move inside the group. It's the most common way. So the three words are this, and then there's an order to it. Behave, believe, belong. You remember this 10 years ago, if you were still here? that typically when it comes to joining some kind of organization or group, that this is the process by which somebody outside moves inside, is that first they, be, they behave like the members of the group behave. And then they come to believe in the same way, or they believe the same stuff the members of the group believe. And once somebody behaves like us and believes like us, they can belong to us. You following? Now, you're probably thinking through your own life about various scenarios and situations in which you went through this process to join some group. I've talked about this once or twice. I, I was in a social club in college. It was a social club, not a fraternity at our little Christian college. And um, to join that, uh, well, I was going to say fraternity, social club. To join that social club, you did have to pledge. 
Okay. And I'll tell you, pledging was the most fun I never want to have again. It was about a month long, the process, and it follows to a T that pattern. Believe, behave, and only after those two belong. It starts with what they call bid night, which is a night that goes all through the night. I can't tell you all the things that we did. I would, I would break my, my deep oaths if I, if I did that. Uh, but the night starts very publicly, and Lindsay remembers this, that they gather all these boys up who are sophomores in college at the point, that point, and we have to wear suits. And it's September, so it's really hot in Texas. And we stand in this concrete amphitheater at ACU where most of the time they worship the Lord. But instead, at this one moment, they line up all these pledges and we hold a watermelon off of our shoulder for four hours like this. And um, it's very public and uh, very humiliating. And I remember one time a guy was holding that watermelon and he passed out holding that watermelon in the sun, got overheated, and he fell down, and the watermelon exploded right as his head was coming into the ground, and there was confusion for a while whether it was the watermelon or his head. I mean, it was a scary time. Okay. We all were made to dress alike, all the pledges, and so that was just a part of the initiation in terms of our behavior that our dress had to look the same, so we dressed the same every week. We sat by each other in chapel, and one on one, during one chapel speech, a guy was up there just preaching his heart out. And they had coordinated this in advance where all the pledges were sitting like this, right leg over left leg, and at the same moment, they all switched to left leg over right leg at the same moment. Do not ever do that to me, okay? <laughs> but it was things like that. You know, you, you, had to be, you had to behave like the group. But in addition to behavior, they were also after our beliefs. There were all these things that we had to memorize. We had to memorize where every person, every uh, member of the club was from. So Jake was from Austin. Jordan was from Dallas. You know, you remembered where everybody was from in the group. And you also had to memorize all these facts and important beliefs that the group had. You had to memorize the club verse, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down the beard. Psalm 133, right? So they're not just after your behavior, they're after your beliefs. And I remember a month we've been going through this and we come to another pledging activity and they march us into the Bible building rotunda and we've all got our heads down, we're against the wall, just you know, like flinching as we're thinking about what might come next. And then they all shout, welcome to club. And all of our, our older brothers in club, they come and they put club t-shirts on us, which you're not allowed to wear as a pledge. And there's confetti going off and we're celebrating and partying. We finally belong. And I'll be really honest to you, that process of behaving, believing, and only then belonging, there's a power in that process. You know, we felt like we had earned the right to be part of this group. We had earned it. In fact, that process was sacred to our clubs. And you would, you would be out of line to ever suggest that your club should do something differently during pledging because that process was somehow sacred. And when you're inside of it, you can't see that. It just seems like what everybody does. Remember, I, I got into graduate school. I was not doing club anymore. And something had happened with the ACU club. It wasn't mine, and it was one of the bad ones. We were the good guys. And, um, and I still won't talk to any of the bad ones. And, uh, and so they brought all the clubs together, and they brought in this Bible professor to speak to the clubs about their pledging processes. We're at a Christian college, and some things have been done that weren't right. 
And he begins to challenge that way of, of behaving and then believing and only then belonging. He begins to challenge it from a biblical perspective. And I'll never forget what he said. He says, you have your way, but is it the Jesus way? And I thought, oh, what does this Bible guy know? You have your way, is it the Jesus way? Let's talk about the Jesus way here. There is a powerful succession of stories in Mark chapters 1 and 2 that ends with a scene that we're going to draw out here in just a second. But let me walk you through the stories. The first one is in, chap- is in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. There's a man that's walking towards Jesus. This man has a condition we call leprosy. We don't see leprosy a lot in the Western world anymore. It certainly still exists in the world, not so much in the West anymore. Leprosy was just a terrible skin condition. It would cause boils all over the body. Your flesh would rot away. Because it was contagious, those who had leprosy were kicked out of their community. Typically, they would go to live in what we call leper colonies. But those in leper colonies still needed certain supplies, so there was some degree of forced interaction where they would have to come into town to gather supplies and stuff for the colony. So even though they had been ostracized and isolated, there would sometimes be interaction between lepers and everyone else. And they weren't only ostracized because of the the sickness, they were ostracized because the sickness made them religiously unclean. So a leper could not worship God. They were unclean, and anybody who had been in the presence of a leper could not worship God either, and we could have a long conversation about that. We won't today. But because of that, they had to warn anybody who was walking towards them that they were unclean. And so if you come close to me, you're putting yourself and God, that relationship between you and God, you're putting that at risk. So you need a warning not to come close to me. So as as a leper would be walking towards you on the road, you might imagine two parties coming together like this on the road. They would cover themselves up and they would shout as you approached, unclean, unclean. In other words, you better stay away from me. And so in this story, this leper is walking towards Jesus and undoubtedly is shouting as he approaches, unclean, unclean, because he had to by law. And yet Jesus doesn't go the wide way around him. Jesus stays where he is as this man approaches. And the man says to him, if you choose, talking to Jesus, you can make me clean. And look at this. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. He said, be clean. One of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. I mean, you could spend a month just praying over this passage. Just imagining yourself as the one that in your sickness and condition that Jesus doesn't flee from, but reaches out and touches. Hmm. The one nobody else will touch. The one isolated from everyone else. Jesus reaches out and touches And then come to the next story with me. This is in Mark chapter 2. Flip the page over, starting in verse 1. You have this man, so if the leper had a condition, this this man has an illness, a wound. Not an illness, a wound, something that's happened to him. He's paralyzed. I'm going to talk about this story in a few weeks, so I won't go in depth here. But this man has some friends, and his friends believe that the best thing for this paralyzed brother of theirs is to get him close to Jesus. If they can get him close to Jesus, it will surely be good for their friend. 
So Jesus is teaching in a house. There's so many people in there. It's crowded. They can't get him in. And so they carry their grown friend to the top, to the rooftop. They cut a hole in the rooftop. They lower him down to Jesus. Jesus sees the man. He's in the middle of teaching, and someone's lowered down to him. And he stops what he's doing. He looks at this young man, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Get up, take up your mat, and go home. Chapter 2, verse 5 and 11, he forgives him of his sin and he heals him on the spot, stops what he's doing. The important teaching work that he's doing to be present with this guy and to heal him. And then look with me at the next verses, 13 and 14. This is where we're going to camp out on. You have this man named Levi. We know him as Matthew. Okay, Levi was a tax collector. Now, in the ancient world, tax collectors were bad news. They were universally known to cheat everyone that they took taxes from. And so there may have been an ethical tax collector out there, but if there was, we don't know about him. The impression of tax collectors was that they're all sinful. They're bad guys. And so Levi has an identity that he has chosen for himself that would be viewed as bad in that world. You remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he. Um, he was a tax collector, and when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' home in Luke chapter 19, we're told that the people said he's gone to be the guest of a sinner, and they muttered about him. They don't talk about him, they mutter about him. And so here in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus comes to Levi, a sinner, and he says to him, Come, follow me to the sinner. He approaches Levi, calls Levi to himself, and says, you need to stick with me. One of my favorite books that I've read in the last few years is by a guy named Dane Ortland. The book is called Gentle and Lowly. And the subtitle of the book is The Heart of Jesus for Sinners and Sufferers. And that's what I think about when I see these stories. Jesus' overwhelming heart for people who need him. Look at verse 15 with me, though. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know that you can see a doctor on the phone now? Have any of you done this? It's incredible. You could see a doctor on FaceTime. Uh, and I can imagine that this would be a helpful thing to have if you were on a deserted island that still had cell phone service and you needed a prescription called in. You know, like you just, you call them up on the phone. But otherwise, as wonderful as that might be, can you imagine what the doctor might miss? You know, by not being able to take your blood pressure, listen to your heartbeat, look down your throat or into your ears. You tell them, here's what I think it is. But don't you want the doctor to see you? I mean, don't you remember Dr. Quinn, medicine woman? And that's a true story, right? And in the middle... In the middle of the night, it didn't matter if there was a storm outside and it was dark, she'd saddle up the horse and she'd ride to be with the person who was sick because to be a doctor means to be with the sick. 
right, to offer them healing and help. Let's, let's draw this story out here. I think I got my markers here. Let's, let's talk about what's happening in the story. Jesus is he's having a meal here. So let's look at this story top down. Here's the top of the table. We're looking top down at this scene. So Jesus is eating. So we got Jesus at the table. And on either side of him, who are we told that he's eating with? Tax collectors and sinners, which is another way of saying he's eating with sinners and sinners. That's tax collectors. Okay. So on either side of Jesus, we've got sinners and sinners. You see that? And he's eating with them. I'd love to do just a whole sermon about eating and what that signifies, but, but in the ancient world, and I would, I would say still today, eating with somebody is one of the most fundamental ways that we connect with another human being by sharing a meal with them. I was at Harding University doing their lectureship this week and talked to some young preachers and um, talking about lessons I've learned in preaching. I haven't learned that many lessons, but one that I've learned is 99% of the problems that I have with somebody else can be resolved if we get coffee together. You know what I'm talking about? If we get face-to-face and share a meal together, it can typically get worked out. Um, It's why in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council is trying to figure out how to have Gentiles and Jews in the same church. And they're like, there's a lot of stuff we're not going to make a big deal about anymore, but we do care about what you eat. And we hope that you'll refrain from eating these things. Why? So that we can eat together. If we can't eat together, we can't, be, we can't be church. And so Jesus is connecting with sinners in one of the most fundamental human ways. He's sharing a meal with them. So you've got Jesus at the table with sinners and sinners. And did you remember who else is at the table? Who else? I heard it. This is the interactive portion. Disciples. No, nope, we're going to come to that. Wrong. Hang tight. Okay. This is why we don't do interactive in front of the whole church, because that's one of my shepherds right there. Okay. All right. Um, Who else is at the table? The disciples are at the table with Jesus and sinners. This is the first time the people of God are called disciples when they're at the table with who? With Jesus and sinners. Now, there are other times that Jesus interacts with somebody and he leads with condemnation or conviction. I think that's absolutely appropriate at times, but pay attention to what Jesus is doing right here. He's flipping that sociological model that we talked about on its head. It's no longer behave, believe, belong. What is it? Belong. Belong first. Believe. Behave. You see the difference? How do we know that? He's eating with them. Now, who has the hardest time with it? The Pharisees, okay, who are there, but not at the table. Okay, look. Now, okay, let me say something about Pharisees. When we talk about Jesus' stories, the Pharisees are usually the bad guys, but let me just point out, the Pharisees were the good religious people of the day. They were the people who cared about, more than anything else, holiness, honoring God by refraining and staying away from sin. So the Pharisees will not eat with Jesus and sinners, 
because they care more about anything else, more about holiness than they care about anything else. And yet they're nearby. We've got good religious people. Okay, we've got good religious people. How's that look? It looks okay. Good religious people who are nearby, but unwilling to be at the table with Jesus because at the same table are sinners. So that's what they're not willing to do, but they're close by. And this is how we know they're close by, because they come to who to ask a question of why Jesus would eat with sinners? Who do they come to? The disciples. In fact, and it's, I mean, it's notable. They don't ask the question to Jesus, even though he's close by. What you have here is good religious people who try to come right here and pull the disciples away from Jesus because Jesus is with people they don't think he should be with. He's with sinners. You know, the Pharisees, the good religious people, have a really hard time with that model that leads with belonging, and so they try to pull the disciples away from Jesus so they can talk to him about it. Which is fascinating, because in this story, to pull the disciples away from sinners is to pull them away from Jesus. Um, Let me offer a caveat here. The Bible is deeply concerned about the degree of influence that someone's sin might have on someone else. I encourage you this afternoon, read 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. And one of the responsibilities of the church is to protect the spiritually immature from the influence of the sinful. It's, it's, it's part of our job. And so there have been times when the shepherds of this church have intervened and removed someone whose sin is causing others to stumble or to sin. And so that's absolutely appropriate here. And so let me just offer a caveat here that what we're talking about here with disciples implies their maturity, that they can be around these sinners without the danger of themselves falling into the same sins. And we might apply different principles or categories to the spiritually immature. This is a distinction that Ephesians 4 makes, among other places, between the mature and the immature. The immature are easily swayed. I think about my friend who pledged the bad social club because he was going to be a missionary to them, right? He was going to change them. How do you think that turned out? I mean, he's an 18-year-old kid, right? Okay, so it, it didn't turn out well for him, so there's wisdom here in protecting immature disciples from influential sin. I want to offer that caveat here. But let me just point out to you that Jesus makes sinners feel and know they belong with him. Why, though? For the purpose of their belief and behavior. Not just so that they'll have warm feelings in their heart, but because he desires healing, repentance, transformation to the glory of God. How do we know that? Look what he says. At the end of this story, he says this. He summarizes why he's at the table with sinners, and he says this. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He doesn't say the sick need a friend. What does he say they need? A doctor. 
somebody who can help you. My son this week, uh, I was out of town. And so when you go out of town, you know that you pray. If you've got little kids, your one prayer is, God, don't let one of my little kids get sick while I'm gone. You know, that's a burden on, on your spouse who's back home. So, of course, one of my kids got pink eye and a double ear infection. And um, he's all better now. He's through all of his antibiotics. He's all good now. But he went to the doctor, and the doctor looks into his ears, because we didn't do it virtually, goes to the doctor. doctor looks into his ears. And can you imagine if the doctor looked into his ears, looked at his eye, and then just gave him the lollipop? He was like, antibiotics? Nah. This is a cherry lollipop, though. Okay, what my, what my son didn't, he didn't need a friend in that moment. What did he need? The doctor to help him, to help him to get better. Or let me tell you, the other time that this story is mentioned in Scripture where Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners is in Luke, in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus follows up that account trying to defend his actions by telling a story. And the story is of a shepherd who has 100 sheep. One of those sheep goes missing, so 99 are left. One is missing, and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find the one. And when he does, he joyfully puts him on his shoulders and goes home with him. He invites all his friends, and they throw a party. So he desires to make this sheep know that he belongs back with the flock. They're going to have a party. But do you remember how that parable ends? This is what he says. I tell you that in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, not over one sinner who belongs. Belonging was first. But there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, rejoicing in heaven, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to. But listen to that. The desire of heaven is that the people at this table would deny themselves and believe in Jesus above all else. He's brought them to the table for that purpose. That's what all of heaven desires, is waiting on, and rejoices over. The, the church I went to growing up had in the entryway, the front doors as you walked in, uh, written in cursive on the wall above those doors that said, come as you are, come as you are. And you've probably seen that at churches before, and I think that's beautiful. In fact, I think it reflects this story where Jesus receives all those who come to him, no matter what they come to him with. In fact, in the shepherd story, Jesus goes looking for these people and brings them to the table. That's how much he desires this. Come as you are is absolutely the truth about the body of Christ. But can you imagine a church that scribbled out over the word come and they wrote stay as you are? You should not go to that church. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not. You do you. Let me help you to do you. The, Bible, the, the gospel is that you deny yourself and elevate him as king because he's invited you to the table when you didn't belong. And he's invited you to the table by giving his life on the cross that you might be there with him. No extent to which he does not go to make sure you are welcomed at the table, but not so that you'll stay as you are, but so that you will be healed, transformed. You would deny yourself and follow him with everything inside of you. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. All right. So, let me just remind you, the, the people who have a really hard time with this, 
are good religious people. They have a hard time with that. Because there is this part of us that wants to draw really sharp lines on some topics, some issues, some sins, and say, well, that's, that's a bridge too far. That one's not welcome anymore. And I, I'll just tell you that in this story, the good religious people are the ones who get it wrong. And so as we think about what it means to be the body of Christ, we've got to pursue this. I mean, you, you, you've got a sinner in your life. Where do they belong? Here. Here. They belong here, believing and repenting. Here. That's where they belong. Uh, because, of course, the problem is, if we say that sinners aren't welcome at the table, there may not be a seat for any of us. Right? That's, that's the rub, isn't it? So praise God that His Son Jesus would set the table for sinners and disciples both, because that's who we are here. And I hope that's the church that we are too. Let me pray over us. God, I thank you for the goodness of your word, which guides us. I'm thankful for the example of your son, Jesus. I'm thankful for his grace, his heart for sinners and sufferers. Would you captivate our hearts? with the same compassion and love and embrace so that all people, all that we know and love and that we ourselves might every day repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ for our good and for your glory. And we pray this in his mighty name, the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.